Yo, what up, Ken folk? This your boy Smo, and you're listening to the HodgePodge Podcast. Welcome to the HodgePodge Podcast. I'm your host, as always, D Hodge, but you guys already knew that. I was listening to the Body Bone Show a couple of weeks ago, um, and he mentioned it again. This is why I'm bringing this up here before we get into the introduction of the podcast. Um, he said when he grew up in poverty in Mountain Pine, Arkansas, He despised rich people. I didn't know what he meant at first until I had the same kind of experience. I I grew up, you know, not the richest person, not the poorest either, but, you know, we somewhat live paycheck to paycheck or we live paycheck to nothing, to nothing, to nothing, to finally a paycheck. Um, you know, we were always struggling to figure out, oh, how are we going to pay this? Well, if we pay this this month, we're not going to be able to pay this. Or if we pay that, we're not going to be able to pay this. Or if we pay all of them, we're not going to be able to eat. You know, my whole life has been like that. It's still like that now. Um, and I understand what he's saying because I will look at people. For example, there's this people, you know, um, that I went to school with, and they were loaded with money. Lo- and, and you think I'm joking here? No, they were loaded with money. Um, and that was hard to, to, to deal with at, you know, in high school, even in middle school, because you're coming in with you know, um, what you had, and they're coming in with these luxurious clothes and shoes. Man, their backpacks were probably 300 bucks. And I was like, I hate that guy. I hate him because he has what I can't have. And I despise that. And I understand what he's saying now when he says that. I understand 100%. 100%. Diving off from the negative to the, well, it's not really a positive, but a positive came out of this experience. My guest today is Calvin Parker. Calvin Parker has arguably the biggest alien abduction story in the United States of America. In 1973, he was abducted along with his co-worker Charles Hickson uh, in the Pascagoula River which is probably about 45 minutes from where I'm at. Uh, so he was abducted in Pascagoula, Mississippi, on the uh, Pascagoula River. And the story goes that 
when he was abducted, him and his co-worker, he lied because he didn't want, you know, he thought people were going to think he was a liar. He had just gotten married. He didn't want to lose his wife. He didn't want to lose his job. He didn't want to lose the funds yet coming in. And I hit Calvin Parker up and I was like, hey, come on the podcast and tell your story. Just, just, just come on and do it. Because he, he had done like the Travel Channel and like the Discovery Channel and all that stuff about the aliens, you know, the the, 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 the abduction stories and stuff like that. And so uh, he came on. Um, so I, I actually went over to his house. Um, beautiful house, by the way, Calvin, if you're listening. Shout out, dude. <laughs> Thanks for doing it, man. Uh, beautiful house set up in the suburbs. Let me be honest with you. I described this in the podcast, but let me say a little bit what happened. I was so scared. <laughs> I was so scared. <laughs> I was so scared to go. Because this guy arguably has the biggest alien abduction story in the history. And I was like, man, if I go, am I going to be scarred and hit up by these aliens? You know, that's my biggest fear. But it, but it's like if I if it does happen, at least I know they're they're freaking real. You know what I mean? So, but yeah. Uh, Calvin joins me today. Um, he's talking his new book, Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, My my Story. His second book is also out. It's called Pascagoula, The Story Continues. Both of these are out wherever you get your books, Amazon, Books A Million, all that good place. He's telling the, the, the story of how the book was not supposed to be released until a certain time, but then Amazon put it up early, so they had to release it. It became a bestseller. You're going to hear that story. You're also going to hear the story of what he came here for, being abducted by the UFO by the aliens, by UFO, whatever you want to call them. He talks about the story about how, you know, everybody thought he was lying and the police, without knowing, taped a tape recorder to the, to the you know, the, the end of the table or underneath the table and was like, I'm going to get these guys that they're lying and listen back and they were lying. <laughs> so you're going to hear that story. You're going to hear, because of these books, there was new information uncovered you know now there's a two-hour documentary in the works there's a movie screenplay almost done he talks about the movie the documentary how all that came about um the song that i that that that, that, that i'm playing here in just a second um it's called black water blue moon it's a song johnny cobb and jerry mccoy wrote based on the Pascagoula abduction of calvin parker and charles hickson you're gonna hear that story you're gonna hear all how it all comes about and how now he had just came out about this attack a few years ago publicly, and after, after going into hiding, he comes out of hiding. It's like, hey, I'm here. Let's do all the interviews I can. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to get all this out so nobody has to ask me 76,000 questions. Yeah, good good talker today, man. Uh, I'm all, that's the biggest fear. The biggest fear of doing a podcast is you don't know if the person that you're going to get is a great talker. Like, you know, you have people that just say, yeah, you know, man, I wrote this back in 2008, and it turned out to be what it is. You know, you can't really go off that question. But this this Calvin Parker, I barely got in a word in edgewise, which I love. I love when this happens because that just means this guy knows what he's talking about. He knows the track he's going to go. He knows the questions. Somewhat of them I'm going to ask, but I kind of threw him for a loop on a couple ones, I think. But, yeah. That's going to do it for this introduction. If you like this podcast, go give it a five-star review um, on Apple Podcast. And once you do that, 
write a review, send it over to me, screenshot it. I'll put it up on my Instagram story at Hodge and at the HodgePodge Podcast. I will get all that up, and hopefully you guys will see it, and I will read it over the feed of the podcast. That's going to do it for me on this introduction. Let's go over right now to my friend. Now I can call him my friend. I, I love this because I can always call all these guys my friends because we just get along so well. Calvin Parker on the biggest abduction story in the United States. Arguably. Black water, blue moon, strange things have they been past On a Mississippi riverbank Sky lit up Time stood still My whole world changed It's my Alright, so I'm here And with me in his house is Calvin Parker How you doing, man? Doing great How are you? I'm making it. So, for those of you that don't know Calvin Parker, he had an alien encounter. A UFO encounter was exactly. ab- was abducted by an alien. Um, so, we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. He also has some books he's going to talk about and a couple um, a song someone has written about him. We're going to play that as well coming up. But first, just take me back. Take me back to when you were a kid. Did you ever believe in those things? No, I never even knew what one was. The closest thing I knew... When I was coming up in the, uh, they had the Apollo mission going to the moon. Right. And when it come back, I remember, the biggest thing I remember is them quarantining everybody for seven days away from their family and all. And that was the one thing that stuck in my mind. But I, I had no idea about UFOs and aliens until I got abducted. Right. So, to make a long story short, when I got abducted, that was the one thing I was worried about was uh, catching a virus and giving one to somebody else or maybe radiation or mm-hmm. something. Of course, this was in 1973, and I was working in the oil field, and I was getting ready to get married because I was working seven days a week, uh, 16 hours a day. And I didn't want a job like that when I went to work in the oil field, so I called a friend of mine, Charles Hickson, up and asked him if he had a job. Of course, he was working here on the coast for uh, F.B. Walker and Son Shipyard. He said, sure, come on up. And he said, I got a room I can rent you for uh, $50 a week. I said, well, that's good. So I got made the drive, and I came down on uh, October the 10th, took my physical and all this, and went to work on October 11th at the shipyard, my first day at the shipyard. And as I tell everybody, on my first day, going to that agent, I got another physical, I got abducted and lost a job all in one day. So we went to work on October 11th at the shipyard and I was working as a ship fitter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when we got off work, Charlie suggested to me that we go fishing. I said, well, that's good, but I didn't bring no fishing equipment. He said, well, I got some you can use. Now, for a man from the south offering to uh, 
right let you use his fishing equipment that's like him loaning him his wife or something so <laughs> yeah you uh that's a pretty big honor i said well, okay so we went by his house and picked it up and he said there's a place i go called the grain elevator where i usually fish so we rode to the got in my car and rode to the grain elevator and the bugs what they call the no sims which you can't see them but they got to have a mouth as big as a uh, right hippopotamus or something because mm -hmm. they hurt when they bite. Right. They were so bad that we couldn't stay there. He said, well, there's another place right up the road. It's called, there's no abandoned shipyard called the Shaw Peter Shipyard. And I've always caught a few fish there. Let's go over there. So we decided to leave and go to the Shaw Peter Shipyard. We got out and the first thing I noticed was a no trespassing sign because it was an abandoned shipyard and there was debris everywhere. And I said, Charlie, why don't they ever clean this place up? He said, well, he explained when the water got up and got high, all the debris would come up into the uh, shipyard. Mm -hmm. Then when it went out, it would just leave and deposit it there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that pretty well explained that. We went ahead and got our fishing equipment, walked to the pier pulled an old log up on the pier and sat down at the log and I was looking across the river on the other side where there's no steel hull boat and I was thinking to myself now how does something made out of steel float and that's always amazed me how they build them out of steel and concrete and all they float well that's when I noticed some blue lights flashing from behind us reflecting across the uh, water there and I just figured it was a law down there to run us off. And I told Charlie, I said, that's the law. they here to run us off, and you're going to get me out of jail because mm -hmm. this was your ideal. Well, about that time, we stood up, and we turned around and looked, and we noticed there was something, and we couldn't quite make it out just yet, sitting behind us probably 100 yards, and there was blue hazy lights just revolving around it. And they were about the same color as the patrol cars in this area. Then all at one time, the lights got bright. It's just like a big spotlight come down on us. And when these lights got bright, uh, it kind of blinded us for a second. But when it got to where we could see just a little bit, or where I could see, now I'm not speaking for Charlie, it was three uh, creatures approaching us. Now, they had, uh, they was built real odd, you know, like a football player, as I described them, except they didn't have a neck or nothing. Their head just kind of sat on their shoulders, and they was gray in color, and their skin was wrinkled like an elephant. So, I don't want to interrupt you, but did it look like, kind of like, you know, like TV shows will inherit and say this is what an alien looks like kind of like you said they were green but like the gray creature the green creatures and stuff like that were they did they look like that but just gray or did they no look? they they didn't look nothing like i've ever seen okay when i was when i got done with a book i did some research mm -hmm. and i it never interested me till me until last year when i was writing a book so i was doing research on uh aliens to see if i could find some pictures that looked like them Nothing even looked like these. And they moved like they was mechanical, like robotic, you know. Okay. So uh, 
these creatures came to, or floated across the top of this grass and debris, and they was there in no time. And that's when they uh, grabbed me, one of them grabbed me by my left arm, and two of them got a hold of Charlie, and I felt an injection in my arm. So we figured, and later on when we went to the hospital, they figured it was a uh, something to settle us down so we wouldn't be so scared okay. of anything. And that kind of relaxed me. Well, this thing started carrying me toward the craft, floating out. He just floated across this marsh grass. And what was amazing to me when he lifted me up by this one arm, it was no pain involved or nothing. Now, I didn't weigh but about probably 140 pounds in, and you'd figure it would break your arm something just grab and pick you up. But it was just kind of levitated us along with them, floated us to the craft, and we got to the door where this bright light was coming from. And one of the first things I remember was uh, looking in to see if I could see any light fixture or a spotlight or something like that. But it wasn't. The lights was illuminating out of the walls. It looked like it was coming out of the paint. Then they kind of dimmed as we went on inside the craft. Well, I made a left turn. Now, I don't know where Charlie was at this time. I didn't see him anymore until okay. I got out. But this creature made a left turn with me. He went down just a little ways down the hall. And there was a door on the right. And he made a right turn and went into this door. And there was an examination table that I could see, and I, I don't know why I'm calling it an examination table, I guess because he laid, laid his on it. But it was, uh, looked like glass. It was a beautiful looking table. And he laid me on this table at an angle. Mm -hmm. And then he just backed up out of the way, got in a corner, and uh, just sat there. And that's when I figured he was robotic or uh, mechanical or something, taking commands of somebody else. Well, out of the corner of my eye, which I couldn't move my body, but I could roll my head a little bit, roll my eyes, I noticed this, uh, and I'm calling it a female, I don't understand why, female-looking creature coming toward me. Now, she looked fairly normal to me. You know, if I'd met her on the street, I never would have known she, she was an alien or anything. She had eyes, nose, ear, mm -hmm. mouth. The only difference I could see, and the reason I noticed is she got her hands and she grabbed me by the cheek and kind of squeezed it a little bit. There wasn't no feelings, but I could see her two middle fingers was a little longer than average, mm -hmm. than what would be on the average woman. Now, like I say, I don't know if it was female or male or what it was, but it appeared to be female because, you know, a male can kind of sense a female and a female can sense a male. And I just sensed that it was female. And uh, she grabbed me by the chin then with one hand and she pushed my chin down. And that's when she took her other hand and run her fingers down my throat. And that little deal that hangs down in back of my throat, mm. she kind of curved them and tried to come up behind it into my nasal cavities. Mm. And that's when I started choking and bleeding. Well, when I started choking down, she automatically pulled her hand out and uh, telepathically said, we're not going to harm you. Now, it always got to me 
where it was were if she was talking about the big robotic looking creature or maybe there was more somewhere hid out into right. another room or something and she said in like a redneck woman's voice kind of soothing you know that uh we're not gonna harm you and it sounded like a woman and it was plural and uh i just took it for granted it was more than one in there without seeing any of them right because she said we're we're right right, right. So I'm thinking at this time they must have studied the culture here and all and uh, related herself to this culture where they wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't be so afraid about all this. But she said that and then she made a mumbling noise when I started panicking a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, kind of like an alligator during mating season. You can hear them for miles during the spring when they mating and all. And she did it with her throat. And this robotic looking creature I was talking about popped up like a jack in the box and just come alive. And he come over and grabbed me by the arm again. And I felt another injection at this time. Well, that kind of settled me down. Well, she, let, let me kind of back up a little bit. Okay, when I ahead. first got in and I was laying on this table, there's something about the size of a deck of cards came out of the ceiling. Okay. Well, it got down about a foot or a foot and a half from my forehead and started revolving around. And as it went around, it would click. And I'm figuring that was some kind of X-ray machine or MIR or something that they was doing right then, checking for something. And then it went back up. And that's when she came out, you know, and grabbed me by the chin. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm to the stage now where uh, I started bleeding and gagging and couldn't breathe. Mm -hmm. And she summons this robotic looking creature to come back over and uh, inject me again, whatever they had injected me with the first time. And he just lifted me back up, carried me out, set me back down on the riverbank in the same spot I was, except where my hands uh, outreached over the river. Well, by this time, I heard Charlie saying, Calvin, Calvin, you okay, son? And uh, I thought, well, no, I'm not okay, you know. I just got another physical here, whatever I got. So how much older was uh, Charles? And Charles you? was 42, and I was 18 okay. at this time. Okay. I turned, this was October the 11th, and I turned 19 November the 2nd. Okay. So, well, uh, anyhow, I said, Charlie, he said, well, we need to tell somebody. I said, tell somebody what? Nothing happened to us. I'm not going to talk about this. I don't want nobody to know. I just got this job here. I'm supposed to get married November the 9th, which this was October the 11th. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not going to go back home and have to explain all this to my wife, my future wife my in-laws, my family, my friends, said, I'm just not going to talk about it no more. So he says, well, we need to tell somebody. I said, you heard me, Charlie. That's it. I'm not talking about this no more. So uh, anyhow, we sat out there and we talked just a few minutes and got up and we made our way to the car. Well, when we got to the car, I noticed the windows on the passenger side of the car 
And I had just bought this car. It was 1973 Rammer Hornet. And, uh, you know, it didn't have many miles on it. Mm. And the the windows was cracked and still in place. Well, when he opened the door, they shattered and just fell down. And I got into the car and I noticed the car wouldn't crank then and it's never done that. It was real long. Uh, real hard to crank, but eventually it did get kicked off. Mm -hmm. So when uh, we got the car cranked, we left and we started, I assumed we was going toward his house and mm -hmm. that's the way that I went. And there was a little convenience store over there. Now back in the 70s, there weren't no cell phones right. that you could afford. Wasn't no social media, computers right. or anything. He said, pull over here. I need to use the phone. Well, I thought he was going to call his wife. That's when Charlie called uh, Keesler Air Force Base, and he told them that we had been abducted by aliens or something. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't really hear the conversation because right. I was in the car and he was outside. So uh, he come back to the car, and he said, do you have another dime? I said, no, look under the seat, you can probably find one because that change falls yeah. out of our pockets all yeah. the time. Well, he went back to the phone. He said, Keesler told me to call the local sheriff department, which is Jackson County Sheriff Department. So uh, he went back to the phone and called the Jackson County Sheriff Department. They automatically thought we was drinking and messed up, so they right. told told us, stay right there where you are, don't move, and we'll be there in a minute. And true to the word, they showed up just a few minutes. Well, the first thing they did was walk up to my side of the car and want to see my driver's license, you know, because I was the one driving. And they asked me to step out. He said, would you step out of the car, please? I said, yes, sir. Well, they just kind of looked in it. They didn't search it or nothing, but they just looked in. He said, now what I need you to do, he had a little flashlight, and he said, follow this flashlight with your eyes. So I followed it with my eyes. He said, now I need you to stand on one leg, bend your head back, close your eyes, touch your nose, jump up and down and count from 100 backwards, like 199, 98, 97. Right. Do that backwards. and. Uh, I said, hell, man, I can't do that if I'm sober, much less if I've been drinking, so right. I don't know what's wrong with you. He said, well, I need you to do that. So I did it. He said, well, you seem to be all right. Follow us to the sheriff's department. I said, yes, sir. Well, the sheriff's department was just across the bridge and about a block down. So we got in the car and followed them to the sheriff's department. We got out and went in. The first thing they did was give me a blood alcohol test to see if I'd been drinking. And that concluded that I hadn't drank nothing that night. And they took Charlie into one room and took me into another room. And they started interrogating us separate. So uh, they was asking me what I had seen. I said, man, I didn't see nothing. That other guy, you know, he must be the crazy one. He's yeah. seeing stuff. I'm, I didn't see a thing. Well, where I messed up, they put us into a room together. When we got into this room, they had a tape recorder right. here. 
Well, but they did like tape it under the table or something like that. Well, yeah, and uh, we didn't know it was in there. Right. So Charlie and I started talking back between ourselves, and uh, I forget what all we said, right, but right. you know we was talking about the abduction, sure, and, and things like that. Well, in a few minutes they walked in, or the sheriff had got there, which was Fred Diamond at the time. Okay. And he asked us to step out for a minute, and he got the tape recorder and he listened to it. And he come back in and said, why don't y'all go home and I need to see y'all tomorrow. I said, all right. At this time, I still didn't know he had the tape. And, uh, but I could tell he was convinced that something had happened right. where he, you know, he shouldn't have been before. So we got in the car, we left, we drove home. Well, the first thing I did before I left was to tell him, I said, look, Sheriff, I'm concerned about uh, some kind of bacterial infection or something that we could spread to other people, maybe radiation or something. He said, y'all go home and rest, and I'll see y'all tomorrow. So we went on home. When I got home, I was so worried about this, I took all my clothes off, and there was blood on them, mm -hmm. put them in a paper bag along with my shoes, got in the shower, and there was a gallon of bleach, and I poured that bleach yeah. over my head, thinking that if there's anything on me, it would kill it. And then I showered off and changed clothes, and I took that little bag out to the dumpster and throwed it. And they had paper bags in it, right. you know, it wasn't plastic. The brown paper bag. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I took that out and throwed it in the dumpster. Well, went back and was going to go to bed and go to sleep, but I couldn't sleep that night. Yeah, who could? <laughs> yeah. I was concerned and trying to figure out what had happened, exactly why it happened, and who it was. Because at the time, I had no idea about UFOs or aliens. Did you think it was some kind of a joke? Like somebody was playing a trick on you or something like that? I did. The shipyard used to build uh, experimental stuff for the uh, uh, Navy and the okay. government. Okay. And I was thinking, well, two old rednecks got in there drinking, going right. to have some fun. And they come up there and picked us up and uh, going to scare the heck out of us. And they did scare us. Right. Yeah. But that wasn't it. Later on, investigations, you know, through the sheriff's department and all, they ruled all that out. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we got up the next morning and we went on to work. Well, when we got to work, I didn't know how many cars were supposed to be there, but I noticed the parking lot was full of cars. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't know it was a reporter, so. We clocked in and about five minutes after we got there, they called our names out on the intercom to come to the shipyard office. So we went to the office at the shipyard, and uh, the owner of the shipyard said, look, we cannot conduct business. Our phone is ringing off the hooks. Uh, I don't know what happened to y'all, but y'all need to do a press release and get this out because we can't even answer the phones right. here because of the reporters. Y'all can't go back to work on the yard because people's going to be wanting to talk to you about it. And to make another story, I got hired, fired, and a physical all in the same day mm. uh, because the press wouldn't leave us alone. Well, 
it wasn't just a few minutes. He said, I have an attorney that works for the shipyard named Joe Flamingo. And he called him and he came down and he asked us what happened. Well, I still didn't say nothing. I let Charlie be the mouthpiece and talk because I figured Charlie was the one that broke the news. Right. And I was really mad and upset with him. So Charlie gave him a press release and then the sheriff showed up himself and said, look, I thought about what you were saying. Y'all need to go to the Sangin River Hospital to the emergency room and I'm going to carry y'all over there and uh, let them give you a physical. So they did. They carried us to the Sangin River Hospital and uh, Dr. Bosco was the one that did give us the exam and did the blood work and did all this. And he just said, y'all okay to go? I don't believe there's nothing that could be spread or right. anything like that. So by this time, the sheriff had called Keesler Air Force Base, mm -hmm. or they had called him wanting to come in for a radiation check. So he put us in the patrol car, and we drove to, uh, or he drove to Keesler, which is about 30 miles or 30 minutes, might as well say, from where we were. Mm. When we got there, we didn't even slow down at the gates. They escorted us straight on back to an area where there was a warehouse. Okay. And there was about six or seven people that has hazmat suits on. And they were standing out waiting on us. So they stepped to the car, told everybody else to step back out of the way, took us up and examined us for radiation. Well, when they done this, one of them said, all clear. They pulled their hazmat suits off, and he said, they're wanting to see y'all in the conference room. It's straight down this hall. Well, we walked down the hall to the conference room, and we got there. It was all kind of military brass. It was the mayors of most of the coastal cities, the police chiefs, a few policemen, and a few other people. I don't know who they were. And they was wanting us to tell them what happened. Well, again, I wouldn't too much tell them anything, although in the minutes of that meeting, I did tell them a little bit, but I felt scared not to by then because we'd been through so much and they was getting so heavy on this interrogation thing. And I still wanted to stay with my story. Nothing happened, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, they got through interrogating us. They said, y'all can go. They was real polite and nice and just asked us a few questions. So we went back out and got in a strip car with the sheriff. He said, look, there's somebody that wants to see y'all when you get back to the yard. I want y'all to see them before you go anywhere else. And it was Dr. J. Allen Hynek over Project Blue Bull and Dr. John James Harder, which was from the University of California, had come down on their own dime to uh, see us and talk to us and interrogate us herself. Well, Dr. Harder took Charlie to the back room mm -hmm. and examined him first while Dr. Heinick talked to me. And Dr. Heinick just more or less introduced himself, told us that he used to work for the government and all, and uh, asked me what happened. Well, again, when they put the word government in there, I was afraid to right. not tell him or to lie about it or anything. So I told him just a little bit about it. And then when he got through with me, Dr. Heineck interrogated Charlie and uh, 
Dr. Harder gave me a physical exam, looked at the puncture marks on my arm and all that. And they got through and he said, look, I'm going out to the site. And uh, I want to see y'all in the morning, if at all possible. I said, yes, sir. My plans was to go on home. So uh, the next morning we got up out of bed. He apparently, Heineck, had went to the site. And I remember him being upset at the sheriff's department for not treating it like a crime scene, not taping it off and mm -hmm. looking for evidence. So he got there and he walked around and looked the best he can. Didn't say nothing about finding anything at all. And he left with a remark. Well, I know these, something has happened to these guys in his press release. And uh, something, that, uh, I forget just how he worded it. But he believed that something did happen. Well, uh, by that time, the sheriff was giving his interview to the radio, to the news. And he was also saying, and it's not like the sheriff back then, you know, he was a real hard butt. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was real firm. And he initially said, you know, I believe these guys. I believe something happened to these guys. So uh, I went and I got my car. I went and got my rest of my stuff at Charlie's house. And I drove back to Laurel, Mississippi. Well, when I got to Laurel, the media would not leave me alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, they kept hounding me. So I just more or less went into seclusion for 45 years. I didn't tell my fiance, I didn't tell my friends, I didn't tell my family nothing about what had happened. I just kept it under my hat. And up until it got time to write this first book, I, I still hadn't told anybody nothing. Now. If you want to be in a doghouse, you keep a secret from your wife for 45 years. <laughs> now, the way this book came about, we mm -hmm. had a neighbor that passed away. Okay. We went to his uh, wake. Okay. And while we was at the wake, I normally never signed my name to anything, but we did sign the register that night. Well, people started recognizing my name on the register. You know, this has been 45 years right. later, and I spent my whole life hiding from the media. And uh, they noticed my name on this register, and they said, are you the Calvin Parker that got abducted in 73? Well, I hated to just sit there and lie. And I said, yes, I am. They started asking questions. So my wife and I decided to leave out of respect for uh, right. uh, this woman and her daughter. They was mourning. Uh, and uh, on the way home, she said, why don't you write a book? I says, no, nah, I'm not no author. I don't have an education. I can't, yeah. I don't, I can't even spell my own name part of the time, much less write a damn book. Yeah. So she, she mentioned it and brought it up and kept on about it. I said, well, maybe if I get a ghostwriter, I might try one, which I knew I was lying. I was just trying to get her off my case about the book. Well, it just so happened the next day, the very next day, I got an email from a guy called Martin Willis, okay. and I had talked to him in the past on a little podcast. This was years ago, and he had my contact information. He said that Philip Mantle wanted to get in touch. Now, I didn't know Philip Mantle from the UK over anybody. Okay, Th that's, that's interesting because I booked you 
And then like two weeks later, I got this weird email from from that Philip Mano guy. Oh, and I was really? Like, yeah, I'll read it to you real quick. And it freaked me out because I was like, oh, God, I'm here with a guy that got abducted by aliens. <laughs> What's this happening? It says right here. Um, I got it right here. And it freaked me out because it says to undisclosed recipients. So I was like, you know, I'm thinking something, the government or something. Oh, just, yeah. It was just me thinking that, you know, no disrespect. It was, it was like, give me a little bit of information. Like over the past two years, this alien abduction gave me a bunch of notes. And it said that, you know, they were writing a movie and doing a documentary and a song and all that. So once I realized, once you sent me that song that you yeah. wanted me to play, I was like, okay, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, so he he uh, asked my contact information. I told Martin, I said, that's fine, give it to him. Well, he called, and it was un- actually Charlie Hickson had wrote a book. I had nothing to do with it. And he wanted to know if I had any information mm-hmm. to ask me a few questions about it. I said, I don't talk about stuff like this, Philip. I just don't get into it. I don't mm-hmm. want to talk about it. I don't have any information on the book. I said, every time I talk to the press or someone, they change my stories. Yeah. I said, they take something as dramatic as this, and they make it even more dramatic by lying about it. And I said, so I don't give interviews, and I don't want to. He said, look, I have a solution. He said, why don't you go on record, make this your legacy, and you put it black and white, and they can't change it. And I thought, well, you know, that does sound pretty good. I said, let me think about it. Right. Just call me back. So what I did when I hung the phone up with him, he was supposed to call back in a week. I put no answer where his name was, because I had no intentions on talking to him again. Sure. Well, I was down at the boat landing loading my boat up. My phone rung. And it just kept ringing back to back. So I figured something might be wrong maybe at home or something. And I just grabbed it and answered without looking at the uh, ID uh-huh. on it. And it was Philip Mantle. And I said, oh, man, I hate to be rude and hang up on him. I'm going to hear him out. He said, Calvin, listen to me. Have you thought about the book? I said, yeah, I thought about it. I said, Philip, I don't have an education. And as I said, Everything I do gets changed. So he talked a little bit more, and he actually talked me into this book deal. And uh, I come home and talk to my wife about it. And, uh, that's, of course, that's what she was wanting, too, so it kind of made her happy. So the deal and agreement that we made is was that you do not edit this book, not one thing in it. You don't correct a misspelled word. You don't put a period okay. and question mark on it. Where they're supposed to be, right. Right. You don't do nothing to the book. The raw book is me. That's what, the way that I want this. And that's the only way that I'll write a book. He said, well, it you could probably do it in two or three years. And I agreed not to do all that. I said, two or three years? I said, hell, I can read a book in a week. I know I can write it in a week. So I told my wife, I said, look, we reached a deal on the book, and I'm going to my room. Don't let nobody bother me. About once a day, send me something to eat, a glass of water or tea in there. And uh, I started working on the book. 
-hmm. Well, in two weeks, I sent him the first draft of the book. Well, he sent it back. He said, that's quite a mess. I said, well, that's just the way I am. Remember, I don't have an education in literature. I'm not an author. I'm just trying to tell a story. He said, let me give you a guideline to go by. He said, chapter one, talk about this. Chapter two, talk about this. Chapter three, right. and get down you know, toward deduction and what happened and all that. So he gave me the, dial, uh, the uh, guideline to go by. Well, uh, probably in three or four days, I went by that guideline. I grouped everything up, like you said. And the first is introduce myself. Then where did I meet Charlie? Then talk about the induction. And you know, he had it numbered down into different chapters. So I did it that way. Well, he first said we'd do the book in September. We'll release it in September of uh, 2018. Mm. But he got the book and he looked over it, published it and put the stuff that he wanted off into the book and uh, accidentally sent it to Amazon to review and so we could set it up for September. Well, this was in uh, July and the Amazon accidentally released a book for one day. Well, we couldn't take it off the market. Right. It was such a big demand for this book. Really? That, uh, that we couldn't take it off. It hit the bestsellers list within a week after it was on the market. So Philip just gave up everything that he was doing right then and helped, you know, with the book, promote it and all. Well, it was shocking because I figured I would sell 10 copies yeah. and I'd have to buy them. And I'd just <laughs> give my families and right. friends a copy to keep from having to uh, uh, tell the story. Because I still hadn't. Up until this happened, I hadn't even talked to my wife about it. Right. Now, while I was writing the book, I did have a uh, hypnosis in 93 from Bud Hopkins. And I sent Philip the, uh, I just mentioned to him one day, I said, you know, I got to meet Bud Hopkins in Florida one time. He tried to hypnotize me, but he couldn't. So uh, he said, oh, I know Bud Hopkins. He's a good friend of mine. Let me uh, let me see if I can get, he's dead now, but let me see if I can get a hold of that, transcripts. So uh, it wasn't too long after that Dr. Jacobs, which took over Bud Hopkins' work, I emailed and asked permission to give Philip Mantle the transcripts of the hypnosis, which I didn't even know I'd been hypnotized. Right. I said, yeah, that'll be fine. You know, he's a publisher, we're doing a book, go ahead and give it to him. So he gave it to Philip. Well, Philip transcribed this out in writing and he sent it to me. Well, I didn't take time to read much of it. I just got in there and opened it up and looked and I thought, man, damn, I have been hypnotized. You know, that was shocking to me. I went out on my porch and I said, man, I told my wife. I said, look, that nutcase did hypnotize me over there. And uh, it's all black and white right here. And I, Philip sent me the tape. And uh, I said, what I'm not going to do, I'm not going to read it. I don't want to know about it. I don't want these thoughts in my mind. But what Bud had done was put a post-hypnotic suggestion in my head. 
that I wouldn't remember this until it was time to remember it. So I asked my wife, I said, you go read this and you remember it. And then when something comes up or I remember it, I'm going to ask you about it. And you see if it's in the transcripts of the hypnosis. So she went in there, stayed in there about 45 minutes, come back out crying. She said, I just can't read no more. I said, why? Is it that bad? She said, it's bad and I can't read no more. Don't want to read it, not going to. But she had read through, you know, most of it. Mm-hmm. Well, what jarred my mind, Linda Moulton Howe called wanting to interview. Well, she's an investigative reporter right. also. Well, I accepted the interview, but she did her homework and a lot of homework on I me. Mean, she knew more about me and my past than I knew about me and my past. And uh, she started asking questions. And through these questions, it jogged my memory, and my memory started coming back about this hypnosis stuff. And sure enough, it was like a movie projector in front of me. I started remembering it and uh, putting dates and times and facts together with it. And uh, I told Philip, go ahead and have it in the book, that I still wasn't going to read it. I was waiting it out. And that's what we did. Well, to make a long story short, the book hit bestsellers list. I started getting calls. I started getting interviewed. News media started to interview me. Fox News called. They uh, wanted me on Waters World. Mm-hmm. I went on that. Uh, several news agents did. All the local news just swarmed the house here. I didn't realize when I did this book how hungry people were to hear this story. Well, then Rebecca Davis uh, from Main Street, Pascagoula, set up a book signing for Pascagoula. Mm-hmm. And she asked if I'd come on the anniversary that October the 11th. Just, you know, we released right. the book in July. So that following October the 11th, well, we agreed to go to that. Uh, I didn't think anybody would be there. So I was just going to go sit down and sign a few books for her. She ordered some books, tell a little story. We ended up being there for hours. It was lined, stretched out across, down the street. It didn't look like any end to them. And uh, here no country redneck up there, <laughs> sitting here signing books yeah. and telling his story. And everybody was just so interested in it. And uh, out of the story came a lot more. That's where the second book came from, which to me is a lot better than the first. Okay. The first book, I didn't want to do myself. That just happened. The second book, I wanted to be involved in, I wanted to do, because I knew the people in this book, the witnesses that come forward and all, and I had been talking to it. I'd been going to conventions and talking on the news media. So I felt a little more comfortable talking about it now than what I did then. Like I say, the first book, as far as me wanting to do it, I really didn't want to do it. But the second book I wanted to get into, and and I've read the second book two or three times myself, Mm -hmm. just because it intrigued me, everything that happened after that. Right. now. I haven't read either book. Let me tell you how I came upon you. Okay. So a couple years ago, 
I was in the library down where I'm at, and they had this book because I'm fascinated with like aliens and the ghost and all. Right. I'm just fascinated. And so I got, I don't remember the title of the book, but it had your story and Charles's story in there that you guys were abducted. And I was like, that's interesting. You know, never heard of it before. And then you were on a couple of TV shows, like, don't really know the name, but like maybe like Unsolved Mysteries or something. Some, it was one yeah. of those weird things. The Travel like, sh- Channel. Travel Channel, yes. Right. It was one of those, and I was like. They did a great job on that. Fantastic job. And I was like, Wow. Maybe I can get this guy, and then that's how this came about. Well, I was very interested, did my research of what I could, and got a hold of you, and that's how we did it. So that's how I know who you are. Yeah. Just last night, I had all, uh, you know, they got that Haunted Channel coming. Yes, yes, Well, yes. they, they uh, got in touch with me and asked me if I'd come on that. So I'm still in question about that. I don't know if I want to go or not. Mm. Uh, so... I sent them back an email and filled out their little application thing that you had to fill out. So they, they screen it and see it, you know about it, and I'll see about it when time gets here. Now, do you ever, even though you wrote two books, you're talking to me right now, do you ever get tired of telling the story, or is it just like it's part of your life, so why can't you not tell it? Well, used to, I didn't want to tell it. You know, right. you go 40, like I say, you go 45 years right. and not talk about this. And all your friends and your family knows about it. Your wife knows about it. And you not tell her. You know, it was like a relief when it come down. So, yeah, I, it relieved 45 years off my life. It's helped my marriage because I don't have to keep this secret from her anymore. We actually talk about this sometimes. She goes to the conventions with me. Uh, you know, they'll give me a little speaking fee and buy my plane ticket. We'll take that and buy her plane ticket. And we actually have fun together. We do things together and all. So, yeah, I, it's down to where I enjoy talking about it. Mm-hmm. And because this is the first relief I've had right. this last year. You know, this just been a year since yeah. the first book came out. So, uh, so is the second book out now? The second book's out. It came out October this year. Oh, okay. So this month. Yeah. Okay. It's out this month through Amazon. Okay. And it's uh, Past for Google. The story continues. Right. New witnesses, new evidence. Right. So, uh, like I say, we've met a lot of interesting people. We actually went down. We was went to Arizona at UFO Congress. And we was there for a week. And during this week, we met Dr. Alan Hynek's son, Paul Hynek. And he's such a pleasure to be around. Got to be around George Knapp. He, I've known George yeah. for years. And he um, was he George Knapp was one of those that was involved in the. Um, can't remember the name. It was Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar. That's it. Thank you on Netflix. And I have you seen right. that. No, I hadn't okay. watched it. But you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly okay. what you're talking about. Yes, Bob Lazar, that's right. So, uh, yeah, he, uh, I know George Knapp well, his personal okay. friend. We, I got to uh, meet him face-to-face instead of talking to him on the media. And since then, I've done a couple of interviews with him on uh, Midnight in the Desert or whatever mm. shows he's on. Martin Willis was there, and the same day that I got to meet Paul Hynek, 
which I just sent Paula text while ago. This book right here is Paul Hynix. I just autographed it to him and go mail it to him. But he is so funny, and he remembered back when uh, he was just a kid, Dr. Allen Hynix gave me his phone number instead of I ever need anything. I wanted just to talk to call him. Well, I called, and uh, his dad was gone. Mm. Well, he was out playing soccer, and he run in to answer the phone. And he had a big chalkboard, and he was trying to uh, write the message on the board. And uh, he was trying to spell Paspagula. Of course, Paspagula, <laughs> I guess, is a French name or something, like Gaucher, you know. Yeah. The way you say them and the way you spell them is two, two different, different ways. Things, yeah. So I was trying to tell him how. And, hell, I couldn't spell Paspagula. Yeah. And I finally just t tell him, Calvin Parker called, I can spell that. <laughs> so he wrote it down on the chalkboard, and we was talking about him sitting there struggling, trying to write all this information down. Uh, another person I got to know at this conference, we had a booth set up, and we, I was autographing a few books and signing them. And uh, Kathleen Martin, had a booth right by us, which she's a hypnotist that came right. down in uh, just just before this book and interviewed. The transcripts of the new hypnotist are in the new book. Okay. So Kathleen came down. Now she's trained in forensic science. She's also a trained hypnotist and registered to do that. And she flew down here and uh, hypnotized me in a three-hour session. Mm. And we got a lot of new information out of that. Now, what hip being hypnotized does, it don't really put anything in your head or take away anything away, but it helps sharpen the details okay. of what did happen. And that has always surprised me. I know the first time I told the guy that hypnotized me, I said, look, see, I was a little country boy. I'd never been hypnotized. I said, but I watched these floor shows in Las Vegas, and I've seen them do stupid things when they ask them. Now, I don't know how true that yeah. is, <laughs> but if you try to get me to do something stupid, this friend of mine is going to be in a room with us. He's going to take my ball back, and he's going to beat your brains out, and he's going to give me the ball back, back and leave. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I told him, and all that's in the first book, you know. So, uh, you know, I can be hypnotized. A lot of people can't. A lot of people can. And uh, it's something that you really want to have to be. Now, we took polygraph tests, voice stress tests, mm. every truth test known to men, except for uh, CIA giving us sodium pentothal or something. But uh, we've been hypnotized. We've been interrogated by some of the best uh, people that interrogate. Mm -hmm. Never had no man in black, not that I know of. But Paul Hynek, which was John Howell Hynek's son, said the man in black do exist in every way. So, uh, you know, we've been through the ringer with this. Mm -hmm. And now we got the books out. My plan is to, uh, if my health holds up, we working on our houseboat now. When it's ready, we're going to get it and take time every now and then, go off grid, just to get away from yep. all this. Yep. 
and uh, we completely self-retained water, sewers, electricity, and all that. So we could go out and stay a few days and not have to worry about nothing and come back just get to get away, away from it and just come back, yeah. Because now, the way that this is, I never know who's going to show up on our doorsteps, you know. And most of them don't have an invitation. Somebody be knocking on your door. I, for instance, I had one man knocking on the door. Of course, I've invited them in because, and uh, he came in. He said, am I going to hell? I said, man, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm not Jesus. I don't judge you. I don't know what you've yeah. done or who you even are. So he wanted to talk. Him and his wife come in. It was hot out there. So one had invited them all in. We sat down and talked a few minutes. He told me who he was. And uh, they all know that I'm a Christian. My beliefs hadn't been stumbled in that way. Right. We're recently working on a uh, screenplay for a movie. Right. And it's due to come out soon. So how did that come about? That's what I was going to ask you about. Uh, back when I first did the book, I was contacted by a seller. Mm -hmm. And when I say a seller, uh, somebody that takes this, does a screenplay, okay. and he sells the movie rights in. Okay. So uh, we've done several additions to one as of, you know, before this one comes out. And they hadn't been exactly like the book was. And I'm not going to accept anything myself yeah. except for the facts. Yeah. I don't want it to end up like Travis Walton's movie, Fire in the Sky. I talked to Travis when we was in uh, Arizona, and he was telling me how all that came about and all. So, uh, you know, I want to be sure that it's as factual as what we can get it. Yeah. Because... Why take something this big and have to lie about it and make it a Harry Potter movie or something? Right. It's kind of like that Walk the Line with Johnny Cash. Like, right. That is like 95% like fake. And it's just right. like there's only 5% that's real. And you just like, once you learn it, you're like, you know, they're lying to us. But again, it's Hollywood. So they, right. you know, they have to get your attention. But why wouldn't this get your attention? Yeah. Why wouldn't it? That's what I'm saying. You know, the story's there. It's black and white in a book. Mm-hmm. All a person has to do is take the screenplay and write it off the book. <laughs> you know, if nothing else, start off in Katrina and work your way back or start off in yeah. the sheriff's department when they was interviewing us. Yeah. Showing that we took a field sobriety test and a blood alcohol test, show we wasn't drinking, and then work from there, show Dr. Heinick coming in. It's just a lot of ways to go about it, which I hadn't agreed with any of them that I've seen so far. So, last question here. There's a song by Johnny Cobb, which is like, which is like a big songwriter guy. Big oh, singer yeah. songwriter guy. And Jerry McCoy, I'm not familiar with that name, but I'm pretty sure since he's associated with Johnny Cobb, he's a pretty he's, big deal. He's a great guitarist. You have a, they got a song about your story called Black Water Blue Moon. Right. So, did they come to you, or did somebody reach out again, like the book and the movie? No. Uh, they actually... Uh, came to us about the song and okay. wanted to do a song. And he is a great guy. He was real interested in this stuff like that. So uh, he got the details from my publisher, Philip Manning. Mm. And they worked on a video and a song together. And then they presented it to me. 
and I think it's great. I think it's a good song. My wife loves it. I love it. And, uh, you know, he did that because he just wanted to be a friend and to show his support in right. this. He's not asking for nothing out of it or anything. So, you know, we've become friends since then, and he's a great guy. And if there's ever a movie, I would love to have this song in the movie. Right. That because that'd be a perfect fit because it's not it just would. like it's not you're, just, you're not picking one out of a hat. You're actually one that was written for you by uh, you know about your right. story. You're not just picking your own song. <laughs> and where that came from, uh, Karen Nelson with the Sun Herald newspaper, mm -hmm. she interviewed Glenn Ryder, which was one of the deputies that come out. Okay. And he was set. You could pull that up in uh, online. And he was sitting there telling about when he picked come out to. Uh, investigators and he was sitting in his chair and he said you know when there's black water and a full moon there's strange things happen here on the coast and that just clicked for some reason made a big big uh, impression on me and it's true and we fish on a regular basis me and my wife still fish we hadn't done much of it this last year because we've been yeah. traveling but this year we're not going to travel so much. But where we are going to travel is going to be places that we won't actually want to go and travel to. Mm. And uh, you know, I've already started getting invitations to conferences, but I'm not going to be like a lot of these people make career going to these conferences. Yeah. This, these books. I help promote them and sell them the best that I can. If there's a movie, I'll do that. But other than that, I want my private life back. I want to be back to where I was. Yeah. So. Well, Ben, I appreciate it. If you get a third book out, if you decide to write one, I'll get you back on you promote that. Good deal. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by HodgePodge Productions.